Welcome back to everyone uh, to the Web3 show. It's episode 20 and uh, as, as you can hear already, we're starting the show off a bit differently. We've got lots to cover this episode and it, uh, it's always a great privilege of, of mine to, to do this show with none other than Galactic Q who's going to shove some alpha down your throat about how Doquan is absolutely pulling the pulling the crypto market uh, through the mud at the moment, willing it into existence single-handedly. And, uh, of course, your guy in TradFi, who is broadcasting from his bed, being an absolute trooper, uh, joining us tonight and uh, not giving in a miss. We, we really appreciate it, while still being on holiday at the same time. Uh, he'll be back on Wall Street uh, taking names ASAP. Uh, but yeah, thanks for uh, for coming through, Luca. You, you're an absolute champion. Um, thanks. We were we were chatting online, uh, offline, about how crazy the crypto the crypto market has been recently. So, John, do you want to give us a your market your market update straight away? Let's dive into things and uh, get the show on the road. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean. As everyone should know, the gains over the last week and a bit have been pretty great. Um, yeah, I'm sure most most of us have been, you know, kind of kind of waiting for this the sideways range bound action for Bitcoin to end. And you know, with last week's weekly candle, we kind of smashed through all the critical levels of resistance from 46k down. Um, yeah, we, we pretty much took one weekly candle from the bottom of the wick at 40,500 all the way up to weekly close at 46,900 roughly. And, you know, with this one critical thing that we reclaimed was the 45, 46k resistance zone, which had proved to be quite a strong point of rejection, um, over this kind of sideways consolidation that we've had over the past couple of weeks. Um, another thing that we managed to smash through was the bull market support band, the 20-week SMA and 21-week EMA, um, which has proved to be quite strong resistance and support throughout Bitcoin's history. Um, when we last broke through this, uh, we had a similar setup to the May-July dip last year, um, where we originally had the crazy fall-off um, after the meme coin mania last year um, and ultimately consolidated for a couple of months. So it seems like we we follow in a very similar fractal, but what's different this time is we've managed to put in macro higher lows. So I remain fairly bullish. Um, the fact that the market is still going up makes me a bit nervous, um, but I think that largely you know uh, says things about Duquan doing doing some big Bitcoin buy orders. Um, but ultimately, we are overbought on a ton of indicators. Fear and greed is going back into the greed sec- section. Um, we've seen a lot of the oscillators topping out and, you know, we've, we've, we've had a strong move. Um, so it makes sense that short term we get some sort of relief from this push and we see a bit of a pullback. Um, but again, that being said, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a 48K Bitcoin again, possibly even 49K just to get rejected below 50 before we have a retest. But the fact of the matter is we should see a retest of the 45K level if we lose 45 we likely retest the 42K before we continue this uptrend. But it's great to see some strong positive price action again as the market was leading into a very bearish state. I'm sure those who are active on Twitter would have seen how bearish crypto Twitter was becoming, and that's usually the perfect buy signal. 
Um, the other thing that we've seen is obviously Ethereum, which I know we're going to be chatting about later in the episode, but you know, the talks of the ETH merge um, has obviously led a very bullish spike in the Ethereum price. Um, I think we've seen about a 30% gain in the ETH price against the dollar um, over the past couple couple days. Um, we saw a break from 2.6 all the way to current levels over 3.4, um, which has been phenomenal to see some strong price action for Ethereum. And on top of that, we're looking at ETH breaking out quite nicely versus BTC, moving from 0.068 to the 0.071. Um, and if we currently continue the break from the bull flag that we're in, we should see ETH outperform Bitcoin um, by another 5% to the 0.075 level. So all in all, market is looking strong. Uh, we had the fall off of USDT dominance. We're getting the fall off of the BTC dominance. And we're getting total two, total three market cap breakouts, total three being altcoin market, total two being total market, including ETH, excluding Bitcoin. Um, so, yeah, right now we've seen a lot of bullish price action, but we do need some form of short term relief before we continue up. So, John, thank, thanks for that. As, as always, great market update. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, get your takes on uh, both, of, both of this. Um, I pulled out this tweet from the depths of DGN Crypto Twitter um, from from Crypto Rover. It's probably, I it seems like just an overly bullish bad take, but the tweet reads, my targets for the coming two to four months, BTC 70 to 100K, ETH 6 to 10K, DOT 60 to $100. XRP three to five dollars, ADA two to three dollars. Now, maybe I should have just uh, stopped at the third one and asked you if it was a good or bad take. But uh, both of you, do you think it's a good or bad take? This one. <laughs> I mean, there's hopefulness in the XRP and Cardano there. I must say. <laughs> I know, I know. That's why maybe I shouldn't have mentioned them. Skewed, you, skewed the, skewed the answer more. For, for all our new viewers, uh, between the three of us, there's there's not a lot of bullish mentality or sentiment towards Cardano and XRP, unfortunately. Um, so you're just going to have to bear with our shit as we, <laughs> we rip it apart. But that being said, on a, on a technical basis, we have seen a really strong move in Cardano from the 80 cent level to the dollar twenty, And we're currently retesting major support uh, for ADA as well. So, I mean, on a technical front, we could see a really strong move back to the $2 region for Cardano. So it might not be entirely incorrect, but yeah, I guess these are blue sky scenarios if the coin's going to be going back to six figures. Look, the the, the history lessons uh, are, are, are pretty clear, right? I think you can take a 10 to 30% haircut on bull market predictions um, and, you know, have a sensible level to aim for. So interestingly enough ignoring the xrp and ada stuff um also by the way john to you so so interesting to listen to you literally go from fundamentalist how you feel about something to technical trader emotionless like just the change in tone of your voice uh don't know if anyone picked that up uh but it was actually interesting i was listening to um uh pomps uh and anthony Pop pompliano's uh uh, newsletter today he wrote an article titled there's not enough bitcoin available in the market and he basically drew the parallel from and we'll segue into doquan and everything happening with terra from here but he basically drew the the parallel from basically a bunch of supply metrics um fundamental supply metrics that are 
analogous to September 2020. And he basically uh, extrapolated that out from where we had, uh, I think it was something like the same levels, uh, the lowest um, level of uh, liquid supply of Bitcoin on exchanges or essentially the highest illiquid supply, um, people moving Bitcoin into cold storage off exchanges. That level hasn't been seen since September 2020. So what he was drawing at is basically saying we're lined up historically for potentially a massive run of Bitcoin. And maybe it won't be this to, to this extent, but basically in September 2020, Bitcoin was at 10K. By March 2021, it topped out at 64K before we saw that huge dump when China banned uh, miners. So are we like like at looking at these metrics um and maybe i'll link i'll link this article uh in the show notes for anyone who wants to read it it's, it's super fascinating and and looking at those fundamental uh sort of stats under you know on chain data but i don't know if you guys uh if you guys think that's realistic given it, have things changed since then um i mean is it is it obviously history's always a a good indicator of what can come, but we know it's it's never you know a perfect science. Um, I wonder if that's possible. Are we just? Is it just too soon to go straight back up to maybe seventy, eighty k right now in the next I mean, six I would, months? I would make one. I would. I think. I think I would make one point. I mean, one thing which was really interesting about the Michael Saylor news, and I know. I mean, we're, we're probably going to segue there uh, soon, but um, I mean, they're basically taking uh, a loan against their Bitcoin. I mean, institutional collateral bitcoin as institutional collateral um obviously is just going to be an exacerbating factor um on kind of the liquid supply right because these things are locked up um in uh i guess multi-sig wallets contracts effectively um and again you know we we still have i mean guys correct me if i'm i'm wrong you have something like two to uh nine billion dollars of buy pressure coming um from the lunar uh lunar foundation uh god right and and um Obviously, you know, one to two percent maybe of the market cap um, has kind of an outsized proportion, has kind of an outsized effect because the market's obviously not as deep as the market cap. So, I mean, we, we really could see quite a strong uh, rally, I think, if Duquan is kind of able to pull this all the way through to 10 billion. Because the depth, the, the, the liquidity on exchanges, um, you know, it, it's just not as deep as the market cap. So uh, you've, you've kind of got to think in terms of uh, depth of liquidity. That's a great point. And, and obviously you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the, the rumored investment. Well, not rumored. I mean, Duquan has been overtly uh, specific about it on Twitter, you know, stating that he's going to literally put $10 billion in the long term uh, into Bitcoin um, through Terra. And John, so I want to bring you in here. Uh, for those people who don't know much about Terra and what it is an, as an ecosystem, I know, like uh, being an eternal Solana bull, you're also a bit of a Terra Terra Luna bull. Um, so I want I want to get you to break down the ecosystem, what's actually happening here. But essentially, you have Do Kwon, who is the the founder of Terraform, co-founder of Terraform Labs, um, right, who who build and have. Who, who built and, and, and run the Terra uh, blockchain that, within the Terra ecosystem. Um, and 
they are now buy, making a huge buy order or in, in, an intention to buy a boatload of Bitcoin up to $10 billion in the long term, $3 billion within the next two or three months. Um, and literally to the day, Doquan, they're, they're buying over $125 million per day. They've been doing daily spot buys of Bitcoin um, to collateralize their stablecoin uh, called US, uh, US Terra coin, which is uh, their, their algorithmic stablecoin. So, John, for people who aren't familiar with Terra, give us a quick high-level breakdown of what the ecosystem is, how the relationship between Luna, Luna the, the utility token, or the, the main staking token within the ecosystem and the stablecoin UST works, and just some background about Doquan and the, and the, the ecosystem as a whole. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, just to, just to give like a sort of an overview summary, Terra Luna is basically trying to tackle decentralized banking. And with that, they developed an ecosystem of decentralized stablecoins, UST, which is the Terra, stable, uh, Terra USD stablecoin being obviously the most popular and the one that's gained the most traction. But they've got a bunch of other stablecoins pegged to various other currencies. And ultimately, what they aim to do here is create sort of an efficient decentralized banking and payment system, which cannot be used to deplatform people as they're focusing on a more decentralized network. A lot of the issues that we face with current centralized stablecoin issuance is that, you know, your, your account, for example, Terra, uh, Tether, USDT, can get frozen um, because of the way it's got centralized control. So, Using these de decentralized um, stablecoins, popularity has grown quite a lot because people know that at the end of the day, privacy is there and utilizing decentralized stablecoins, they can kind of transact without the fear of being deplatformed in any sense from banking sectors. And Duquan basically generated this, this ecosystem that algorithmically retains a peg to the dollar, but it, so therefore, it's not collateralized by actual dollars. And because it's an algorithmic peg, it needs to make use of the, the Terra Luna token, which is the Luna token, as most of you should know, with its massive rampage that it's been doing in price action. Um, and basically, in order to, to collateralize its peg, the more UST that's minted, the more Luna that gets burned and vice versa. So obviously, with this, the sustainability questions that, that are asked and people have been criticizing the fact that, you know, the biggest downfall of Terra Luna could be a bank run um, where people can't cash out their stable coins all at once. So this is obviously birthed the narrative of purchasing a bunch of Bitcoin to, you know, further improve the stability of the peg um, and ultimately help support as a sort of reserve for the UST peg. Um, so what's really interesting here is, you know, these are, I mean, Duquan's probably one of the smartest guys in the crypto space. Um, and he's one of the first guys to truly take a leap in setting up a fully Bitcoin-backed reserve for stablecoin pegs or for an ecosystem support. Um, and I just think it's really interesting because it just shows the long-term eternal bull growth that these guys see or vision for Bitcoin. Um, yeah, so it's a really interesting ecosystem. It's, it's definitely the leading ecosystem when it comes to decentralized banking, um, especially considering the protocols that are developing on the Terra, within the Terra Luna ecosystem, 
you've got Mars Protocol, which is tackling the credit system. You've got Anchor Protocol, which is tackling yield, res, uh, yield um, on UST. Um, you know, currently you can get 20% on your dollars, but that obviously there's been a governance vote, which is going to be reducing that to a sustainable rate, but there's still time to kind of milk that APY. Um, and there's, there's multiple other sort of innovative decentralized finance-based ecosystem projects that are being developed around this decentralized banking or decentralized stablecoin network. It's fascinating to me, John, that how when when they built Terraform Labs in 2019, they released the white paper and they set out this vision to create this ecosystem that relied on stable coins to sort of fill the gap that Bitcoin intended to fill, but hasn't actually fulfilled that property yet as a medium of exchange where, yes, it's been a great store of value as we've all seen, but like we discussed actually on our episode last week, it's actually a poor money in the sense that it's not easily transactable it's it's there's high fees it's a slow settlement time so essentially now doquan is leveraging bitcoin as the ultimate collateral and using that as a backstop to keep his stable coin basically afloat and i don't know uh if if this is maybe um too technical <laughs> let me know but uh do you briefly break down how um like the mechanism how uh bitcoin is going to be sort of introduced into keeping ust afloat essentially because i found this this fascinating um essentially how how they they're they're using bitcoin as a as an incentivization to traders and users within the ecosystem to prop up UST? Yeah, to be honest, I haven't actually deep dived into that, so I'm probably not the best one to, to comment on the technical side of it. Well, um, with, the technical, with, with the other technical question though, Johns, um, what we can touch on is essentially you've got this extreme buy pressure, right? And obviously Bitcoin has this 20, 21 million uh, coins, a token supply cap um, with, you know, all of this buy pressure coming, you know, Doquan buying $125 million worth of Bitcoin every single day is literally buying um, 300% of the incoming supply. There's about 900 Bitcoin uh, issued into supply every single day um, through the block rewards. Um, and essentially $125 million at today's prices is literally three times that supply. You've also got Michael Saylor, obviously, who breaking news today um, uh, closed a you know through MicroStrategy um, actually it was MacroStrategy a subsidiary of MicroStrategy uh, love the love the name uh, originality um, they closed a two hundred five million dollar Bitcoin collateralized loan with Silvergate to purchase more Bitcoin you've also got Grayscale Bitcoin Trust who uh, programmatically buy Bitcoin and literally don't have a redemption feature on their fund. So with this um, and tying back into Pomp's article, there's literally not enough Bitcoin to go around. Is this, well, does, I mean, this we, not, does, we, does this not equal just a straight line up on the graph, um, essentially, you know, well, no, fixed supply, no, no. huge demand? 
like nothing nothing will ever go up forever and yes bitcoin bitcoin's value uh besides its its social um you know its social benefits and things like that from being you know censorship proof money you know at the end of the day bitcoin's value is driven by demand and it's derived from scarcity because we know that there's only ever going to be 21 million bitcoin you know of which you know it's estimated that four to five million of that is a loss so you've actually got much less and the thing is you know there's only so much bitcoin to go around as you said um and i think this is kind of going to be that that straight line chart to to a million dollar bitcoin in, in a decade's time but in between that there's still a lot of retail you know there's still a lot of traders there's still a lot of investors up multiples that you know will ultimately need to cash out and as we know in crypto nothing goes up so i do see you know 80 percent swings along the way um and you know a lot of this upwards price pressure we've been seeing over the past week or two is because of duquan buying bitcoin and all the bullish sentiment that's coming around that you know what happens when he stops you know what happens when that three billion dollars of bitcoin has been purchased and now suddenly there's not this 300 percent buy pressure every day you know it's it's at that point that we likely see capitulation it's at the, it's at those levels and you know there's a reason why um you know michael saylor has an average buy of i think it's 30 just below thirty-one thousand dollars per bitcoin there's a reason why the low 30k level for bitcoin is an institutional defense zone so you know it's it's likely that there's 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 going to be a line that will be drawn as to where they would openly purchase Bitcoin. I don't see Duquan buying Bitcoin at $75,000 if we're peaking at an all-time high uh, or new all-time high, you know, in six months' time. But I do see him buying sub 50K because the risk to reward from here to go up to 100K six-figure Bitcoin in the next year versus going back down to the institutional defense zone kind of makes sense. So, Yes, there is a lot of buy pressure coming in. Yes, there's a lot of bullish sentiments around Bitcoin, but it's definitely not a straight line journey to to a moon boy narrative. I think that there's going to be massive capitulation because at the end of the day, once the ship sails, institutions bring it back um, because they always want their buy opportunity. And it's always going to be retail getting fucked. And it's interesting you say that, Q, because... Uh, and and correct and and going back to your point, Michael Saylor has an average price uh, buy price of about thirty thousand one hundred fifty nine dollars apparently. Okay, to quote to the exact dollar, um, but he's accumulated basically, you know, a, like only about you know twenty two thousand bitcoins. I mean, that doesn't seem like a lot, but that's that's like three point seven five four billion dollars, which is now about worth worth about six billion dollars and basically because microstrategy only reports to the market every three months he essentially buys in the dark for you know those quarters and then reports to the market and then says and then the market goes oh wow um you know microstrategy's bought all this bitcoin and then that get, almost get priced in on the reporting whereas doquan is basically through twitter doing pulling elon musk moves essentially and and I've seen those comparisons being made to him, you know, saying, cool, we just bought another or being, you know, overly transparent because of the blockchain. People are following the wallet that is buying. So literally in real time, people are seeing, you know, 300% um, of the incoming supply of Bitcoin being bought. So it's actually an interesting dynamic. Um, And 
I, I, obviously, I'm not the technical technical guy. What that does to price, but you know that over information or, or too much information. But it's interesting to see the the sort of differing approaches. And it's obviously you know having a blockchain native company doing the purchases or a blockchain organization versus you know a listed um, a listed company in um, a Nasdaq listed well, company well, that only reports to market every three months. I think I think what's what's important to remember as well, Luca, is you know as we see all this bullish sentiment come out, we have just finished three months of capitulation. The market is ready to climb again. It's ready to run. It's ready to push to whether it's mid fifties, low sixties. You know, put in another macro high or low. Maybe go back to all time highs later in the year. The market's ready for that kind of move. But bears are are exhausted. And, you know, if, there, if there's a time to pump this, people are looking for bullish news. And yes, Duquan purchasing billions of dollars of Bitcoin is beyond bullish. You know, when we had Tesla buying Bitcoin and all of this Musk mania last year, we had a crazy deviation from trend. I mean, if you look at the weekly charts, you know, we ran from, you know, 20K Bitcoin all the way up to 43 before having a retest on the weekly back to 30K. And then we shot up to those crazy numbers of 65k Bitcoin, and then ultimately had a 40-50% capitulation event because we just and that happened it. in like days, hey, that run up. I remember you guys with, saying that you with, were trading yeah. that up. Literally, we I, I traded that entire swing, and it was kind of like, you know, p- people were so bullish, and at 64k, people were calling for 100k Bitcoin, you know. But the fact of the matter is, we deviated from so many fundamental trends purely because the market was looking for bullish news. And as we know in the crypto space, it is a speculative industry. And speculation is driven by overreactions to market sentiment. People are bullish in general. The crypto market is fucking bullish. People are bearish. The crypto market runs for the hills. It's blood on the streets. And that's just kind of how speculative asset works while it's so early on in its development. And I do think that this is a similar scenario. You know, people are looking for that uptrend. There's a lot of bullish resets. We've got weekly RSIs, monthly RSIs. We've got MACD, bullish MACD weekly crossovers. We've got all these fundamental indicators telling us that the bottom is here. Not the exact bottom is in, but the bottom is here. So people are looking for that next swing. Everyone wants to land the legendary trade. And ultimately, you know, Duquan coming out and buying Bitcoin at this period, the bulls are ready. And this is kind of that catalyst that's helping the market take a bullish stance. And we've reclaimed bullish levels. We've reclaimed significant resistance zones. If we flip those, do an Irish flip on those and flip them to support. If we flip that bull market support band, there's no reason why we can't go back to the low 60s, you know, or the high 50s before having some form of you know, micro retest and then maybe pushing to your time highs by the end of the year. And it's, it's, it's just interesting to see that because as we go through these swings, we will probably have massive capitulation events because we deviate from trend. And once things go up, they always have to come back down to reset. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating in uh, looking into that psychology of, of how things work. And, you know, it's, 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 it's almost like we've we've been here before, and I remember Luca Luca telling telling me that you guys uh, traded that that run up down uh, that run up to sixty four k last year, and you you <laughs> you came down with it as well. Um, but 
yeah, I mean, I want to bring I want to bring Luca in here as well, uh, j- just to touch on this other point. But I see we also got a caller, um, TJ. Um, just we want to get through the content of the show first, and I'll bring you bring any other callers if anyone else has got a question on. We'll we'll do that towards the end of the show, just so we can get through the bulk of the content. Uh, we've also got the the next session section to go through. Um, so if you just want to hang tight on there, we will bring you up uh, for a chat with the wizards uh, just towards the back end of the show. Um, just carrying on uh, from there, and and being a you know obviously a devil's advocate uh, to the to the bull argument because one thing we do really well, I feel on on the Web three show is that we we aren't all when we when we're bullish, we're very bullish, but we always uh, like to uh, you know. Uh, draw on the risks and and sort of highlight the risks and uh not go full-on absolutist crypto twitter mania bull um as i know luca luca is very adamant on being and, and i think people appreciate that um so luca nick carter make this made this made a tweet i don't know if you um if you saw it or basically over the weekend but there was a he re, he was replying to a tweet from someone where who said if the maxis don't embrace the doquan slash ust arc then they are truly helpless should be a funny couple of weeks nick carter replies and he's quite a he's an institutional investor he's re, i've listened to a few podcasts of him he's really well uh you know well spoken and and is a is a very you know good thinker on the on the topic and has been a prolific investor in crypto um, he says, not to Maxi, but I have a hard time celebrating a fundamentally unstable system, absorbing collateral that that it will inevitably have to sell off when it unwinds. Now, I found this very fascinating because that almost says to me there's an end to the, you know, Doquan and Terra taking on Bitcoin as collateral. Does this make sense to you? Do you agree with it? Do you disagree with it? Will there come a time when essentially Terra has to offload the Bitcoin? Or is that just not, does that not happen? How does that work from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, the main um, demand factor for UST is Anchor Protocol. Um, Anchor Protocol, I think we've already mentioned it on this pod, is swapping to a dynamic rate. Um, They've long advocated um, for a benchmark DeFi interest rate of around 20%. Um, the demand for UST um, has been extraordinary and that's driven the use up um, of the platform and has also resulted in some upwards price pressure on Luna. Um, and, and now we, we're transitioning over to this dynamic in rate because the yield reserves of Anchor Protocol are insufficient to sustain 20% based on the demand. Um, there aren't really any other protocols on Terra that command as much of a market share of UST um, as Anchor Protocol. The the one big issue, I guess, uh, and this is what they're trying to address also with this Bitcoin collateral, is that if this earn rate, so it's decreasing now around 1.5% per month until it finds kind of a stable level. Um, if this continues to drop, basically below the average rate you'll earn on Ethereum, for example. Um, what that means is basically people will want to move out of the Terra ecosystem again and into onto Ethereum. This basically means a drastic reduction in demand for UST. And effectively, because it's a market-driven um, arbitrage that's keeping this thing uh, in place, uh, 
if if let's let's hypothesize that basically the rate drops below the average on Ethereum and it's a massive exodus. What this basically means is that the arbitrageurs, which are basically keeping the USD token at its peg, will be exhausted and they'll have to sell the Bitcoin collateral. I think, I think what where he's going with this is basically, I mean, psychologically, uh, you know, Duke One has been backing Anchor hard. I mean, this real this yield reserve got refilled. If you look closely, I mean, it looks like it's unsustainable, right? And and it's an open question of how far this rate will drop. So there is a non-zero risk that this rate drops to a level um, where people uh, are not as compelled to keep their savings on Terra money and there's an exodus um, out of the ecosystem. I, I think this is unlikely. Um, I really think that uh, Terraform Labs will find a way um, to keep anchor uh, the anchor rate stable. But I think, I think that's one of the biggest systemic risks um, on uh, the Terra Luna platform. And you essentially then have a run on the bank where everything, yeah. you know, goes, yeah, so, essentially. So, so I, I guess, you know, the, if there is a run on the bank, um, obviously UST is not um, backed by collateral. So there's there's never going to be one dollar of Bitcoin per dollar of UST, right? That's just, I mean, that goes against the entire architecture um, of the platform. So if there really is a bank run, um, then the three billion of Bitcoin uh, will just delay um, an inevitable um, collapse, basically. Right, and I guess if they ratchet that up to ten billion, it'll you know further backstop it, further cushion the blow. I guess to only to an extent of the fact that you know if the sole pressure is hard is basically bigger than the back yeah. the, the 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 size of your backstop, right? The size and of your provided, pr- provided they're able to soften this enough, um, probably the kind of market dynamics will give Terra a soft landing and it'll just become a smaller ecosystem again. Um, so potentially, I mean, this will increase people's confidence in UST. And maybe what we see is if they can't sustain a high enough rate, we see a slow decline in the use of UST, um, but no... Uh, collapse effectively. I mean, at the end of the day, this is yeah, and it's, it's down to well, this kind of boils down to you know how successful are these ones going to be, you know. Are you are you hinting at ETH too, Jonty? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm ready to get into. It. I mean, I'm I'm just thinking to myself, you know, if, if, if the only way ETH is going to share still kind of like DeFi market share from these competitor O1 chains or share, you know, any form of, or steal back any form of TVL is once ETH learns to scale. And I think with, without the, the merge, you know, Terra's got all the reasons to succeed and drastically succeed, even with Anchor Protocol. If that yield reserve is even to drop, you know, to 10%, it still largely outweighs competitors. Um, for example, like Swissborg and a bunch of other sort of platforms, or even a lot of the DeFi protocols and Ethereum who can't offer those rates and stable coins. Um, so I think, you know, as, as, as long as these L1s continue to outperform Ethereum, you know, they, they, they've got every reason to succeed provided the teams execute. And I think Duquan is probably one of the, you know, most innovative and most driven founders out there, you know, and most outspoken founders out there as well. 
someone who desperately and will do anything to make their protocol succeed, which is which is I think kind of needed in the crypto space when we're so early on. You know, but but with ETH merge, you know, and ETH scaling coming out, like what innovation is gonna come to DeFi in that sector? You know, how how the efficiencies of those contracts gonna improve, how the APY yields gonna improve. Um, and ultimately, I mean, we know fees are pretty low right now on Ethereum, but there's still multiples what they are on Terra, on Solana, on, you know, Cosmos or any of these other competitor chains. But once scaling comes out, at the end of the day, development sits on Ethereum. Um, so I think it's going to be an interesting road for, for Terra. Um, but at least, like Lucas said, any kind of blow will be a soft blow. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think Terra will ever not be successful, but whether it's success is you know, a whale or success as a dolphin, we'll just have to wait to see the size of it. <laughs> I don't guys, think I, I feel like Guys, I feel like uh, I feel like a hotel being disrupted by Airbnb because you guys literally segued the podcast and did my job for me uh, from Terra to <laughs> E two point So well well done on that. I, I love love that. Uh, just gives me less work to do. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's fascinating to watch Doquan and as we segue to ETH 2.0 um, before, we, before we break it down, being compared to, you know, him being compared to an Elon Musk type, you know, we've, we've watched Elon Musk will SpaceX and Tesla into existence against all the odds, against the shorters, against, you know, the, you know, the established car industry, uh, you know, essentially big, big, uh, the big car, in, uh, you know, big car industry. Um, and you know, people saying SpaceX was do- was doomed to fail. Uh, you know, is is Doquan going to do the same with Terra and uh, wall that into existence um, against ETH? You know, being the obvious candidate for you know the the platform of Web three in the future. And it's interesting you guys brought up the rates uh, because there have been estimates of the the post merge yield being greater than ten percent already. You know, if, if that can get up to 15%, and I know that's inversely in, inversely proportional with the amount of stakers that come into ETH where the the staking rewards do go down the more people are on, uh, the more ETH is staked into the contract. But if that if that rate is dangerously high, that's, ob- that's an obvious threat to Luna. Now, maybe we're jumping the gun a bit, uh, John, so I wanted to get you to break down um, what exactly is ETH 2.0 um, what does it mean? What is the merge? All the stuff we're hearing, um, you know, that's being that's being you know hugely touted for you know a June release. Uh, break it down for us. Yeah, well, I mean, as as most of us uh, in the crypto space know, and for those that don't, uh, you know, ETH is 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 a proof of work consensus blockchain at the moment, which is similar to Bitcoin, which relies on mining uh, methods to to mine new blocks and ultimately function the blockchain. Proof of stake shifts to a less energy intensive uh, method and a much more efficient method, which allows better scaling than proof of work um, by using a method of validators uh, on staking nodes. And ultimately, the, the entire merge for Ethereum is, is shifting from this, this proof of work consensus um, to proof of stake, which ultimately has an end goal of improving the scalability of Ethereum. Now, we did get announced uh, it was about two weeks ago, I think it was, that they shifted the beacon chain to the testnet, which when we had this before the EIP-1559 upgrade, 
um, you know, it was about two months later that we that we got the actual ship to mainnet. And I think Vitalik even said in a press conference that the merge is a couple months away. So I mean, most most people in the market are estimating June, July for the for the ETH staking or ETH shift or merge to proof of stake to go live. And ultimately, I think what this is going to mean, you know, besides a, a price catalyst in the market for Ethereum, you know, this this kind of sets a precedent for you know, the shift of of these blockchains over to, to a new sort of scalable network like most L1s are. And while Ethereum is the leading, you know, L1 programmable chain, at the end of the day, it's quite far behind because we know that the ETH merge, as, as big as an upgrade as it is to the Ethereum blockchain, you know, the TPS speeds, the scalability, and all of that still won't be able to match to some of the L1 competitors. So I think the bigger question to ask, you know, just coming back to, to Terra Luna quickly on a side note, you know, the success of the L1s is basically going to depend on the user interface of interacting with these chains. When, when mass adoption kicks in, you know, what's going to be the most user-friendly to use and what has the most developers? And ultimately, Ethereum sits with that in, in its basket. And I think, you know, once once we have this merge, you know, becoming a validator on the network becomes easy. I think there were even talks of being able to act as a validator from an old iPhone. Um, Luca also read that the, the ETH staking rates will be double digits. You know, there's a lot of huge benefits coming out for the Ethereum network. And I think, you know, we've, we've always all agreed on it on the podcast that ETH 2.0, well, it's no longer called ETH 2.0, but the ETH merge, you know, will be the the kind of, kick that ETH needs to to regain some of its TVL that it lost in the DeFi space. So it is quite an exciting event happening in the coming months. And I think it's going to be a huge market catalyst as well after our bearish Fed rates in May. And speaking about the usability, actually, Jonty, I read an interesting tweet um, today where it said something like, the the unfortunate fact about Web3 is that you know the, the mainstream coming into Web3, they're not going to care as much about this is just sort of a side note aside from e 2.0 is basically that the mainstream isn't going to care about decentralization they're just going to care about how great the user interface is how how beautiful the products are how you know the friction to interact with these products so i guess you know maybe that's also something to keep in mind that if if the bulk of the developers are staying with with ethereum or on ethereum building on ethereum you'd want to think that maybe the talent the talent pool is staying close to ethereum and going to be building on there maybe solana has something to say about that we we don't know but if ethereum can deliver on the technology on the merge that is going to bring all of the promise that it that it promise you know all of the promise that it holds they can retain the developers for the technology and then those developers that talent can then build the the platforms and the interfaces that are going to be presented to the mainstream and essentially keep them there because they're not going to know what decentralization is, you know. And I was thinking about it actually earlier this morning is, you know, when we use money, before we understood the financial system, you just used money because that's how it was. You know, you just used your bank account, you bought, you bought things with cash, you bought things through your bank account, you swiped your card, not fully understanding what you were doing and how the system worked behind that, but just because that's how it worked. So I guess extrapolating to the future, 
crypto gets to that point where the technology is sound, the technology is there, the technology is at its best, um, you know, it's it's a best form, its final form, and there's been a great UI or a beautiful UI that's been created for the mainstream to to interact with crypto and a better better platform for wallets. I know that was a long monologue, but essentially if Ethereum, and I don't know, Luca, if you feel the same way, do you think that this could happen, that Ethereum would essentially blow up if they get this merge right, if the consensus layer, the move to proof of stake becomes, you know, happens seamlessly and they make a move to, you know, sharded chains like the Polkadot chain, you know, maybe next year, they fix the scaling problem and, you know, fees reduce. There's a, you know, uh, a, a d- disinflationary supply as well, so value goes up in that way. What are your thoughts? Uh, I think the importance of this transition um, is really outsized. If we think of um, the main kind of macro headwinds for Bitcoin, uh, it's it's the environmental uh, concerns uh, expressed by many. I mean, it doesn't really matter how you phrase it, whether it's uh, Bitcoin uses renewable energy or it uses stranded energy. The reality is it uses a lot of energy. So it's almost an, an, an unwinnable um, argument. Um, this transition from f- from uh, proof of work to proof of stake for Ethereum uh, will mean the number two crypto um, basically uses, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't have the estimates on me right now, but, but it's a, a very small fraction of the energy uh, that was consumed uh, prior to the shift or, or will have been consumed prior to the shift. Um, and, and this will disarm um, environmentalists. This will disarm uh, the whole energy discussion around crypto as one of the downsides. And that could be a huge uh, hit, um, uh, a huge tailwind um, for us. Also considering the um, rise of ESG, Right, like environmental concerns are prevalent. Uh, ESG investing is prevalent. We're becoming more conscious of energy consumption, etc. Uh, so I think it, it comes at a critical time, um, and will really allow e- Ethereum to become institutional. Yeah, now you make a f- great point about the the ESG concerns and the energy consum- consumption around the blockchains, Bitcoin versus Ethereum, you know, or proof of work versus proof of stake. I've actually got a great graphic in front of me which shows relative energy consumption per transaction, scaled such that the height represents the relative consumption. Um, you know, drawing a comparison to if the relative energy per transaction were a building that we all know or some object that we all know. So you've got Bitcoin um, with energy consumption as high as the Burj Khalifa, which is the tallest building in the world in Dubai. Then you've got Ethereum. Well, that's 830 meters for scale. You've got Ethereum proof of work coming in as the uh, as high as the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It's 57 meters. And then you've got Ethereum on, pro- on proof of stake as high as a screw. So that, I think that someone said that's like, you know, it's like 99% less or, you know, 10,000 X reduction in energy yeah, consumption per this, transaction. I think it's 99.5% or something. It's, it's quite ridiculous, actually. And I mean, Johns, do you think that could be the catalyst for institutions finally for the floodgates to open, you know, for them to become stakers on the network, just to become validators on the network, just to buy it up? You know, is there going to be a grayscale 
Ethereum trust that's just going to buy with no redemption? Well, I think, I think yeah, the, the, the energy side of things is definitely a concern for a lot of big institutional play. But I also think when it comes to institutional investment, the track record is also very important. And I think despite these upgrades that we're getting when it comes to environmental improvements, like uh, technology improvements and all of this, you know, we are still a couple years away from full institutional shift into Ethereum network. And I mean, look how long it took for institutions to start recognizing Bitcoin. I mean, most of cryptocurrency has only been largely recognized by governments and, and you know, central entities over the last year and a half, two years tops. You know, so so I think that that whole that whole shift for major institutions becoming validators on a network with an emerging asset like Ethereum is, I think we're still many years away from that, despite these upgrades that we're getting. Um, you know, the, the other thing to mention, which is quite a common misconception with the ETH merge, is that everyone thinks it's going to solve this fee issues on the network, which largely it isn't. It will solve scalability, which will largely lead to faster transaction times, but the Ethereum gas fees are not going to drastically reduce. So there, there are still improvements to come after the merge. Um, and this is there was an interesting stat comparing current L1s versus Ethereum when it comes to scalability. And you know, it was comparing Solana and Terra Luna and all these other net or chains to be, you know, ETH5 and ETH6.0 while ETH is now upgrading to ETH 2.0. So I think, I think there's a long way in the development of the technology to make it a truly attractive, investable, you know, like tech uh, for institutions. But I think this is definitely a huge step in the right direction. Yeah, and I mean, that's another funny thing that, you know, Ethereum bulls will, will you know, they'll only highlight the stuff that's, you know, important to the price going up, which is what the merger is doing is essentially drastically decreasing the supply um you know the supply growth per year increasing the burn rate per year decreasing the issuance of eth into the network um but yeah i mean i think uh i think that sorry i just lost my train of thought um i think that's about it and i think uh to close to close it out i think we want to bring up uh our inaugural caller for the the, the 20th episode uh, we've got tj waiting patiently there um let me bring you up what's up tj uh thanks for jamming with us on our 20th episode it's a big uh big milestone for us uh hey thank you, you so much Con congrats on 20 by the way that's that's amazing thanks man appreciate it is it all been on uh colin it has indeed awesome. and it will be for the for as long as possible Awesome. Well, I think Colin's on to something. I think this is a great platform or is a great way to, to kind of get in touch with your audience in a way that's intimate, right, and one-on-one -on -one and personable. So keep it up, fellas. Uh, great discussions. Thanks, TJ. We really appreciate it. Do you have any uh, question for us? Do you, want, do you have a point to uh, want to discuss? Yeah, great. Yeah, I, have, I have a couple items of concern, and of course, we can talk through them and, and kind of see how it pans out. But uh, my first one is on this kind of shift of proof to work to, to proof to stake. In traditional finance, it's never a good thing when you have capital allocation uh, that's heavy-handed in a way. And so if you have 1% of the demographic that controls 93% of that wealth, there's traditional issues with that, right? Um, we're going to see that with crypto when we move from a proof of work to a proof of stake. So in that sense, how, how would that very be, be a very good thing for adoption, right? especially low-level adoption? That's my question to you, Bob. Should I take this one? Yeah, Luca, go, go have a go. 
well, I, well, I think a lot of the systems we use today are centralized. I think we've made the point um, on the pod that decentralization is not necessarily something uh, consumers uh, look for. I think it it looks like it right now that Bitcoin is going to stay uh, on proof of work. And I think market dynamics will drive a kind of a trade-off where, you know, you've got your store of value function on Bitcoin and if kind of, you know, D- derivatives, volumes, etc. Everything kind of institutional, uh, decentralized finance moves on to Ethereum. You you'll have this interplay. So I think I think centralization uh, itself. Uh, I, I mean, time will tell. Um, but I don't think uh, this will be a, a large limiting factor uh, for Ethereum's growth and adoption because I, th- I think we can see in all the platforms we use centralization. Uh, there's a small premium. Uh, I, I meant decentralization. Yeah. You. I don't know if you have anything to add, uh, but I have a I have a point um, just to make uh, to to TJ. Just about I, I mean I understand there's that concern about you know the the majority of the wealth being held in in few hands, and I mean that that's you know unfortunately or fortunately what happens with um, you know a, a wildly innovative and revolutionary technology that you know, was shunned to the side by the mainstream for many, many, many years. And um, essentially how that's ended up happening is vastly different, I believe, to how the accumulation of wealth on Wall Street and the traditional markets happened. The way I see it, and, and if you look at the history of Ethereum, you know, since we're talking about Ethereum, if you go back to 2014 when, you know, Ethereum listed its token for the first time, you could have gone onto the open market. Um, obviously, you know, crypto markets were much less sophisticated as they were now. You could have gone on the, on the market and bought, bought ETH for, um, for, what was it, 5 cents or 50, 50 cents, for, uh, you know, $0.5. Um, that's essentially getting into, you know, Facebook pre, pre-IPO, you know, seed or Series A phase, but essentially being open to the public. That was open. That was permissionless. You didn't have to be an accredited investor. You didn't have to work for Andreessen Horowitz or uh, you know Kleiner Perkins, uh, and you didn't have to be based in Silicon Valley to be able to participate in that. And I think it's still the same right now. You can – anyone um, can become a staker or a validator on the Ethereum network once the, once the move to uh, proof of stake happens. Um, yes, to be a validator directly onto the blockchain, you need to own more than 32 ETH, which is a large sum of money at today's prices. But you can easily go through uh, Lido Finance or one of these decentralized apps that allow you to put your ETH into a pool and become a stake on the network earning 10 to 15%. This is open. This is an open monetary system. It's permissionless versus Wall Street, which is historically manipulated by the insiders on at the banks and you know essentially the wealth is stored by you know 90% of the wealth is held by 5 to 10% of people there and, and where you do have the restrictions on you know early investments into into companies but tokens are changing that that's what i believe um and i don't know if that if you have a reply or any follow up concerns to that um that's essentially what i the way i see it um well, I guess I don't know. traditionally speaking, I mean, anytime there's a barrier to entry, we talk about innovation in the marketplace. Anytime you make it more difficult for potential consumers to access the product, usually it doesn't 
help with the longevity of that that model, right? And so that's where we're kind of seeing this whole shift to, to proof of stake rewards those that are already in and doesn't incentivize those that, that don't to enter. And so there's going to be issues with adoption. And then you get the ca- capital allocation problem too, where, I mean, the whole point of crypto to begin with, right, was this decentralized network of computers that validate each transaction, right? That's the very strength of the network. And so if we're looking at crypto from a financial instrument, um, objective, then of course it's going to be regulated as such, right? Otherwise, I mean, what is the alternative? How would you fix the adoption? I don't think proof of stake is going to help with that, and that's just my opinion. Yeah, for sure. Just, 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 just a comment there. I mean, you know, just to echo what Lucas said, uh, the the when it comes to global adoption, you know, most of the population is so used to a centralized entity, and when we talk about this narrative of Web three, which is that kind of you know, this decentralized narrative of decentralizing the world as we know it, you know, a lot of that has to be taken with a pinch of salt. And ultimately, it's going to be decades before the technology reaches a point where there's true and full decentralization across the board. And, you know, I think one thing that we've learned about the crypto space and, and blockchain technology is the, the the innovation around development and pushing barriers and really breaking down, you know, obstacles to adoption and entry. And I think, you know, the, the technology we see today is going to be vastly different from where we're at in the next decade or two. Um, and I don't think Ethereum is going to reach global adoption in the next five years. I think it's a 20, 30, 40 year journey. You know, we're, we're so early on when it comes to adoption phases. And yes, proof of stake is vastly more centralized than proof of work. But at the same time, proof of work is largely shifting into mining pools, which ultimately fall under centralized regulation as well if they all start you know, shifting into similar regions. So so there are inherent centralization issues across the board with, with whatever consensus model is ended up being used. But I think a vast portion of the of the population, especially low level investors or low level retail that just want to use simple banking or or finance instruments, you know, they they aren't too concerned with this decentralized narrative. And I do understand crypto, you know, is is basically driven by this permissionless network, you know, distributed web of nodes or validators. But at the same time, you know, that that matters to to way less of the, the adoptive population. Um, you know, at the end of the day, people want efficiency, people want something easy to use, and people want something that has, you know, very, very little barriers to use. Well, I guess my question is, is are they using it? Yeah, well, I think I think that that use will come. You know, at, at the moment, DeFi only really became a thing in the last two years. What is it? Twenty twenty was the DeFi boom. Um, you know, like like I said earlier in the pod, when it comes to especially institutional uptake, you know, investors need a track record. They need ROI, not over one year, not over two years, but they want four, five year ROI reports. You know, they want to see development. They, there's there's a lot that goes into investing from an institutional level. And there's a lot that happens with, you know, retail investors when it comes to using the platforms. I mean, majority of retail investors today were brought into the crypto space through JPEGs and the whole NFT boom. You know, it's it's only a matter of time before they start learning about things like Anchor Protocol and these various sort of efficient banking sectors that crypto is starting to generate. And, you know, DeFi largely right now is a very simplified version of traditional banking. I mean, it's incredibly difficult to code a lot of the complexities that banking offers. But I think as the technology develops, adoption comes shortly after. 
Guys, any more points to add on this? TJ, I must say, uh, it's a great question and a you know a point you've raised, and it's 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 a great conversation we all need to have. So, uh, really, thanks so much for for coming up and and raising that, and you know, creating some content on our show around that. So, really, and some context as well around that conversation. We really appreciate it. Um, any other? Do you have any other? points or questions you want to ask us we because i think we've run out of time on the show we usually wind it down around this time um but yeah we really appreciate you coming up man yeah absolutely well, as, as they say time will tell right appreciate the time great show for sure for sure thanks tj we'll see you around next week hopefully uh and uh to sorry cut myself out there wizards uh boys any other closing comments thoughts from the show uh was a really enjoyed this one episode 20 uh to the next 20 i hope uh you know i know we're gonna we're gonna smack them out the park um is anyone anyone buying uh q i forgot to ask you about about it earlier um i asked you over the weekend but you didn't uh didn't respond to me what's the stargate finance thing that i'm seeing on has it come up onto your radar at all oh man it hasn't uh, I, it's briefly popped up one or two times but i'll be honest i haven't even had the time to look into it yet um yeah because yeah, i saw I, it, it, it in up. like two days it it like went from zero to three dollars and i thought it was a bit obscene yeah you know as with the the meme coin industry not to say it's a meme coin but as with the meme coin industry or any speculative market you sometimes see uncharacteristic gains um, when it catches the right narratives. Um, but I guess, you know, as TJ said, time will tell. Um, let's see if the project sustains its price action. I mean, I know absolutely nothing about it. I must do my research into it still. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's great to see. I'm sure some people made some decent gains. Well, at least the, it sounds like there's actual research to be done. I saw there was a new meme coin. I don't know if people saw the Oscars on Sunday, Will Smith smacking Chris Rock. <laughs> <laughs> there was a new meme coin actually that launched today on CoinMarketCap called Will Smith Inu. <laughs> I'm not, you can't make this stuff up in crypto. I mean, it's the gift, it's the gift that keeps on giving, honestly. Um, that, I think it went 10,000% or sorry, it was up 1,500% today uh biggest gainer on coin market cap will smith inu um not financial advice please don't <laughs> this is a nothing this is a nothing burger it's complete meme coin could be a rug pool like uh like squid um, squid, squid, squid coin we talked about uh, on episode one back in november um but yeah boys i can't believe it's been 20 episodes uh really excited for the next one uh to everyone who's joined us in the live room we really appreciate uh you joining us every single week uh those who are part of the furniture with us every week you know who you are we really appreciate that um and from the wizards soon to be DeFi pirates thanks everyone we'll see everyone for episode 21 next week <laughs>